it like running a national election campaign? How does polling impact the decisions made on a campaign? I'm excited to explore these questions with Hamish Marshall, the National Campaign Manager for the Conservative Party of Canada's 2019 election campaign. Hamish is currently a partner at One Persuades. Prior to that, he ran the 2019 Conservative Party campaign, was campaign manager for Andrew Scheer's successful bid to become Conservative Party leader, and previously worked in Stephen Harper's PMO. Hamish and I unpacked the experience running that campaign and talk about the role that polling plays in election campaigning. He's been at the center of Canadian politics and shares his perspective on the future of the Conservative movement in Canada and his experience running a campaign that almost defeated Justin Trudeau and the Liberals. Enjoy the discussion. Thanks for joining us, Hamish. Uh, hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. Happy to be here. Real pleasure to have you here. So I want to start, and I've been starting most of the conversations with a question that gets at the overarching framework or you know philosophy that you have when it comes to public opinion in Canada. Um, you know, what are the primary sources? What are the drivers that that you think affect how we think as a country? Um, and ultimately how we behave? Well, I think the most important thing is to step back. And before we even look at how we think of it as a country, think of it individuals. And the thing that I try to keep in mind at all times, and sometimes it's difficult, is that individuals are complicated. And that people resist being put into simple boxes, even though as pollsters, that's inevitably what we end up doing and saying that, you know, that men think one way and women another, or people who are 55 one way and people under 25 another. People are complicated. And there's people who defy what their demographics uh, suggest they should believe. Um, and if you start from that perspective, uh, I think you come into everything with a bit of a more open mind uh, and uh, are genuinely more open to perhaps surprising conclusions when you take that perspective, and I think you're right, like, I, I think we often, particularly those that consume public opinion, those that report on it in a public space often, you know, simplify things like men think this, women think this, young people think this, when in fact, there's a lot more nuance and variation even within those groups than across them. So how does that affect, you know, how you measure public opinion, how you use the data, if if it's not so simple as looking at demographic groups or behavioral groups as, as these monolithic blobs well, my, that act and behave in a particular way. Yeah, my, my approach is to always think about everything probabilistically, right? That every group has a certain percentage of people who believe in you know, every possible answer to a question. There's, no, there's nothing that's monolithic. Um, and so that you can say things like, um, you know, uh, young people are more likely to vote NDP. And the most important part of that is more likely to, you know, and understanding that there's going to be skews based on demographics or skews based on, on how people think about the world from a philosophical perspective is useful, but also realizing that it's not monolithic and that not all young people are going to vote NDP. And it's not even going to be 95% of young people are going to vote NDP or, or for any other party. 
um, it, it's understanding that there's going to be uh, simply because a group is more likely to skew one way doesn't mean it's overwhelming, but keeping that you know, keeping that in mind and understanding that there's going to be that complexity is, I think, very, very important and presents opportunities as well. So when you, when you look at the big picture of, of Canada and Canadians, then, is there an essence of Canadian public opinion? Is there a way that we can sum it up or is that too simplistic a way to look at? Well, I, I think it's a little, I think it's a little simplistic. Um, I think there's a lot of different things going on in Quebec. I think Quebec is very much its own thing with its own identity uh, and its own preoccupations as a result of having its own media, uh, obviously all uh, in French and not just, you know, uh, uh, the French media that might be available to those of us in English Canada, but that's very specific uh, French Quebec media. Um, English Canada as a whole, you know, I don't think with one possible exception has a dramatically different uh, sort of view of the world than similar types of people in other, you know, advanced Western democracies, uh, especially English-speaking ones. I'd say your average suburban, you know, English Canadians' views on the world are going to be certainly in the same ballpark as the average suburban, uh, you know, Australian or New Zealander or, or Brit or maybe even German or American. Uh, I don't think they're vastly different. I think. Quebec is different. The only possible difference is that in Canada, because of the United States, there is definitely a um, uh, that begins to color things. There's a, a desire to be seen as un-American and ideas and concepts that are seen as explicitly sort of capital A American can be seen in a more negative light as a result of uh, you know us being the mouse next to the elephant. It's almost like we're, we're constantly, particularly in, you're right, in English Canada, comparing ourselves to the United States, right? So everyone, everyone, everyone says the Americans have this exceptionalism built into their political culture, but in a way we have our own version of that, which is we are maybe not necessarily better than the United States on everything, although oftentimes we think we are. A lot of research I've done always says, yeah, we're better at them at this, that, and the other thing. How then does that affect um you know the variables i guess that we use to measure um, and understand differences within our own population right like in political science we often talk about cleavages that divide the country you know historically there may be a french english divide and east-west divide as you've you know both studied public opinion for years and also had to apply it to campaigns and, and your other work that you do from a public affairs lens what do you think are the kind of most important variables today in understanding differences in public opinion in the country beyond the Quebec versus English Canada dichotomy? Well, you know, two things. One, uh, your point on, you know, feeling superior superior to Americans is extremely, extremely apt and very, very accurate. You know, as a country with a smaller population and a smaller economy, a smaller, you know, cultural impact on the globe, than the United States and living right next to it. The Canadians, I think, search out uh, opportunities to feel superior to the United States or to Americans. And they do that in a moral sense or in a, in a value sense sometimes. So I think that's an, that, is an, that is a very important distinction that, that your research has certainly picked up. I think when it comes to the cleavages that matter, 
Um, there's two in this country, and, and I know you wanted me to discount, discount the uh, the uh, Quebec English Canada one, and I think that's that, that's too big to be ignored and discounted entirely. But I think region plays a big difference. Um, you know, if you look at values studies that, that have taken place, your average Albertans' values are not particularly different from your average suburban Ontarians' values, but the people vote differently. Um, and so regional identity does play a big a big role. Uh, particularly in the West, but it can't be discounted in Atlantic Canada as well, and obviously in sort of its most uh, advanced form uh, in Quebec. Um, the other uh, cleavage that I think matters the most uh, is education. Uh, I think that uh, education is, you know, is a very good predictor of liberal vote, for instance. Um, it's less of a good predictor of, for other parties, but I think education is often a, a very good predictor on on a lot of questions. Uh, that you might study in a public opinion environment. Um, in a way that age isn't. Uh, age, I've often found, is not, is, is not really a very good um, predictor. It's more indicates where someone is, uh, I guess I could say, in the stage of life, but the things that you measure in the stage of life are better predictors. So, for instance, home ownership, which often happens to people who are older rather than younger, is a good predictor uh, of a variety of political opinions. So is having kids, so is having more money, uh, all of which uh, are, are uh, related to being older, broadly speaking, to a certain point. And then maybe once you know you retire, you have less money. Um, and those are better uh, predictors of political opinion than age in and of itself. But you know, going back to it, I think the if I ha if if you force me to choose beyond region, only one variable to ask about people uh, that would be in some way predictive, I would say education. And that's really interesting because I've noticed, you know, even over the years that I've been doing it, education is emerging even more as kind of this divider. And I, and I and I and I and I tackle it by asking, is it is it because people who get a higher level of education or don't? are different because of that experience? Or is it, and I, and, and I go back and forth, but I, I'm kind of leaning towards what I'm about to say is that we're self-selecting ourselves into different levels of education. And so it's a, almost a, it, it's a good proxy for differences, but it, education itself may not actually be the, the causal variable in all of that. Got, do you have a sense of where you, your head's at on, on why education appears to be so powerful and expl explanatory variable? So in most things, the answer is probably both of those play a, play a factor. It's both a little self-selecting and a little uh, the function of, of, of getting a post-secondary education, changes attitudes. Uh, and if you'll forgive an anecdote, um, uh, years ago, uh, they uh, did a study um, at one of the large Ivy League uh, universities about the study of economics. And uh, they uh, developed a test um, for a concept of uh, Pareto optimability, and I won't go into all the details of the test. But basically, if you give your average person the test, uh, they will do something that is not optimal from an economic perspective. Um, but they found that uh, economic students tended to uh, take to to choose the op the economically optimal uh, answer. And the question became exactly what you asked: was, Is it sort of people who go into economics that uh, that have this view of the world, or is it the people 
who, um, or is it the study of economics? It gives you this view of the world. And they then, uh, so what they did is the next year, they gave the, uh, the test, this test on preparatory automobility on the very first day of Economics 101 at, at whatever this university was, and discovered, in fact, that those first-year students had exactly the same views as the general public, and it's only a year of studying economics that made them uh, take this uh, this optimizing view. So I, I I tend to believe that education has a big impact on on how people view the world, but I also think you're right that, that the sort of people who go and pursue uh, a higher degree of education are perhaps more susceptible to it. Interesting. So in a way, depending on the type of education you you get, and I and I, I even assume there's probably going to be differences. University is not necessarily a good predictor because it could be what you study like those in fine arts and humanities might you know evolve over time in those studies to, to view the world differently because of that which is really which really interesting so the, qu the question then is you know is is one of the one of the things i we, we always if we, if we sort of take a step back and ask ourselves is canada and canadians are they are they fundamentally progressive or are they fundamentally conservative? And I'll add a, a wrinkle to that question. Can they be both? And, and I say, can they be both? Because you mentioned identity before and, you know, so much I think of public opinion and our, our behaviors are triggered by whatever identity we might at any given time more strongly identify with. And so could, could we actually, maybe I'll change the question. Could we actually at once be both a conservative country and a progressive depending on the day or the issue or the context. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I mean, to my very first point, right, people are complicated. And, uh, you know, I've done a lot of studies over the years about ideo ideology and understanding how ideology plays a role in, the, in, in how Canadians see the world. And depending on the study, depending on the province, uh, there's about 10% of people that have a ideologically consistent you know, right-wing, conservative, you know, National Review reading uh, view of the world. And there's about 10% uh, who have a consistent left-wing ideology. Uh, and every the, the other, you know, 80% of people, it's not even that they have sort of a, a shading that goes between those two groups where they are all a little bit more uh, you know, they become a little bit more right wing as they move away from the left, et cetera. It's, it's that they actually hold views that are in some ways in conflict or views that are certainly seen as ideologically incompatible. So there's people who are, you know, in favor of massive increases in government spending, but also extremely religious. And you would argue, well, you know, that's very, you know, uh, fiscally left wing, but, you know, socially right wing. And then there's the opposite. There's people who are, you know, uh, you know, fiscal hawks who are very, very socially liberal. Um, and so, you know, my view is that the country, the country is not ideologically one way or, or another. Um, there's certain aspects that we're uh, quite uh, liberal on, and there's certain aspects that we're quite conservative on, you know, on law and order, any survey on law and order, frankly, any survey on immigration will find a very, very conservative attitude. Any survey on, you know, LGBTQ rights will find a very progressive attitude. I don't think those things are mutually inconsistent. I just think that they're mutually inconsistent and confusing to the ideological people at either ends of the spectrum. 
And that leads nicely into a discussion about campaigns, because I think a campaign of any sort, whether it's an election, uh, marketing, or even a, uh, a referendum campaign is about framing that issue and, and getting more people to, to identify with whatever issue you're, you're, you're framing it around and move them there. Uh, you were the campaign manager, the lead um, for the, the recent uh, federal conservative campaign in 2019. Um, for those that uh, know you and, and would have read the bio before uh, this, this interview, know you're also a longtime public opinion researcher yourself. So maybe start by talking a little bit about if you could share, you know, what role did public opinion research, polling, market research play in the decisions you were making and the campaign was making um, in the lead up to and, and during the campaign itself? Look, um, I'm a data guy, right? I don't believe in making decisions without data. And, you know, everybody who runs a national campaign has a view of the electorate and an understanding of what they want. Um, my view is that that, uh, that understanding of the electorate should be as, as, as informed as possible. Um, and that defines, you know, the art of the possible, what, what we can do in a campaign, what we can talk about and what we can't uh, in terms of what people care about it. Because the most important thing to understand is actually not um, what uh, where people's position is on issues, whether people are, you know, have a traditionally right wing or traditionally left wing position on issue X, Y, or Z. It's more about what is actually important, what's actually the trigger, because to my earlier example you know um i don't think anybody would argue that crime was a large uh, driver of votes in the, the 2019 federal campaign um and but you know it i'm sure we could have come up with policies that 65 or 70 percent of canadians agreed on on crime but that would have been great that would have been nice that you know we, we could have come out in favor of policy x y or z that said that you know everybody agrees we should be much tougher on criminals the fact of the matter is the number of people who are actually making up their mind based on uh, the party's approach to criminal justice was very, very, very small. Uh, and therefore, it's not, uh, um, uh, wasn't worth spending, you know, inordinate amounts of time talking about as an issue because it wasn't an issue that was salient with the public. And that's the, the single most important thing the public opinion uh, research and lots of other important things you can get out of it. So the single most important thing you can get out of public opinion research is understanding the saliency of issues because um, people can uh, run with the same positions in, uh, in different elections and have different outcomes. You know, uh, you know uh, an American example would be you know, Mitt Romney's position on Obamacare in, in, in 2012 was virtually indistinguishable from, you know, Donald Trump's in, in 2016, and one won and one lost. Well, it's because healthcare was a big issue and, and views of healthcare was a big issue in, in, uh, in 2012, but it wasn't in 2016. Um, so, you know, uh, understanding that saliency is vital because as political people, as people who presumably for political, you have some sort of ideology, there's issues that you find are important and you want to see advanced. And uh, it doesn't really matter if you care about issue X or, or Y, it's whether or not the voters uh, can be motivated by issues, uh, by that issue. And that ultimately might lead to determining what the so-called ballot question is 
that voters are being asked to to make a judgment on, right? Um, so from your from your perspective, you know, in the lead up to that 2019 campaign, what do you think the the top issues were, and from a salient's perspective, what was the ballot question being formed before the campaign began? Well, that was one of the the most difficult aspects of the campaign. There wasn't a clear uh, ballot question. Um, there was not a sort of unified sense in in public opinion in terms of even what the top issue was. Generally speaking, about a third, maybe 40%, depending how you've measured it, of Canadians uh, uh, talked about, again, broadly speaking, cost of living uh, and affordability issues. And more than anything else, that's what people, what people were, were uh, focused on. But it wasn't overwhelming. It wasn't, um, you know, like, for instance, the, you know, the, the 1988 election when the free trade, when it became a referendum on free trade and it came down to your, what was your position on free trade is what mattered. Um, or even uh, as simple as, uh, you know, the 2015 federal election when the question was, you know, does Harper, you know, is it time for a change uh, from Harper or not? And um, there was no overriding ballot question um, because the mood was fractured and lots of people had different views. But like I said, more than anything else, uh, cost of living and affordability was, was, was the issue. Did that change over the campaign? Like I had a sense that when it started and I looked at the data we were collecting, which wasn't as in-depth as probably what you had, I looked at it and said, this is an election the Conservatives can easily win because of that affordability question, right? That people were saying, and Doug Ford, you know, had just won in Ontario on basically the same platform and not, not, not platform in terms of the policies, but the, the context that people were feeling pinched. Certainly there was the change element in Ontario with Wynn being deeply unpopular, but at the same time, he also tapped into this sense that life was getting expensive. I, I can't make ends meet. It feels harder to achieve the things I want to do in life. But my sense was that that shifted. Um, people were still saying that issue mattered, but it didn't feel like everybody was evaluating, you know, the party's platforms or, or what they were going to do for them through that lens. Did, did you see that shift at all? So uh, two things about it. number one, the issue, the struggle that we had was that even though people as you say correctly, said that life was getting more expensive and they were feeling the pinch. Uh, not enough people from our perspective blamed Justin Trudeau for that. And, you know, we did our best to try to get more people to, to blame Justin Trudeau. That was the difference with Kathleen Wynne. With Kathleen Wynne, um, a lot of people blamed, you know, high, large hydro prices, for instance, on Kathleen Wynne. And they, they felt that the cost of living was more obviously her fault um, than than people thought it was, it was Justin Trudeau's fault. Um, over the course of the campaign, that didn't fundamentally change from what we could see. Um, the, the question, you know, like every election where a, uh, uh, an incumbent is trying to be knocked off, um, you know, the, the ballot question at some levels always is, did these guys deserve more, uh, you know, some more time in office? slash, uh, you know, that's always the, 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 the sort of the message of the opposition and the message of the incumbent is always, you know, can you really trust the, um, the, the opposition with, with government? 
right? And those are always the ballot questions, no matter what the sort of the, the, everything else, you know, is laid on top of them. They're, those are laid on top of the issue environment. Um, so I don't think that fundamentally changed. I think, you know, uh, towards the end of the campaign, the question uh, became, you know, do you want a conservative government or a liberal government? And, you know, uh, the answer in the West was we want a conservative government. And the answer in uh, the in Ontario in particular was uh, liberal governments fine with us. Um, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, the, the messaging should have been at the end of the campaign that we should have just kept on saying the liberals are awful, um, you know, to, to send Justin Trudeau a message and vote for us. And maybe the prospect of us, you know, not talk us talk, not talking about us winning at, at the end of, of, of the campaign would have had a better result in Ontario. Uh, you know, it's an argument I'm open to, but I'm not, I'm not persuaded either way at the moment. One of the things I thought, and I was criticized a little because I kind of put myself on a limb. I, I thought, you know, the incredibly embarrassing blackface episode has started relatively early in the campaign, right? After I thought a first week in which you guys had set the agenda, you know, we're talking about affordability. It was, it was exactly, I think, how you wanted to start it. It kind of forced a shift in that frame a little bit and it Agreed. put and it put a new impetus in a way on people asking okay well Justin Trudeau did this incredibly racist thing a number of years ago our research said I don't think he's a racist so let's let's we can I think most people could say I could move past that at least those in, may be inclined to vote liberal right but then they right. kind of shifted and said well what about Andrew Scheer right and what about the conservatives do you think that had you know almost perverse way, it helped the Liberals regain uh, the, the frame a little bit and allow them to, to talk about the issues they would have rather talked about than affordability and kind of household finances? I don't know if it helps them, um, but it certainly didn't hurt them the way I think people expected it to. And, you know, I think, you know, when, when it came out, the first thing when somebody, when it, when it became public, somebody asked me, what do you think of this? I said, it's too early. And it wasn't just that it was too early and that it gave Justin Trudeau time to recover. And if you remember the whole blackface thing, his first response the night that it came out was very bad. And his response the next afternoon in Winnipeg was pretty good. Like it gave him, you know, he was able to figure out a much better response and, and, and you know, started a process to move past it, which had run its course by the time we got to election day. If I mean, closer to election day, it would have been more damaging. But... The other less reported aspect of that is that blackface happened, I could be wrong, but I think it was three or four days after we dropped our large universal tax cut, um, which our polling was showing was getting recognition and people were tuning into and people were focused on, and it was getting a very, very good response. And any oxygen that existed around that was completely sucked out of the room um, to uh, to focus on Justin Trudeau and blackface for a week, and our biggest signature tax cut, our biggest pol platform uh, policy of of the in the platform of the campaign, was uh, um, was overshadowed by that and and was sort of lost in the mix. So I think you're right from that perspective. Shifting gears as we get to the end of our conversation, which which has been. Great, we could talk for hours. 
um, hours. But our listeners may not want to listen for hours, so we'll 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 let them off the hook a little. I want to talk a little about the future of conservatism in Canada and, and your perspective on it. I mean, it's only been once, I guess, since the parties merged uh, since 2003, in which you and not once, but like you won three elections and only one of them was a majority. Do you think there's a natural conservative majority in the electorate today in Canada? And do you, do you see it persisting over time? I don't think there's a natural conservative majority, but I think uh, conservatives' ability to win uh, is uh, real uh, and present and um, can never be discounted in a competitive election. Um, the uh, you know, we don't exist in the land of my, uh, that my, my, our, our parents grew up in, right? You know, between 1935 uh, and 1979, 34 years, conservatives were in power for six years, right? Um, between, uh, starting in 1970, uh, 1979, between 1979 and today, conservatives were in power for uh, 21 years out of uh, 41. So, we don't live in a world where conservatives are the default option uh, in this country, where conservatives are going to, all things being equal, probably win an election. But we don't live in the world of the, you know, 40s and the 50s and the 60s and most of the 70s, where uh, the default option is that um, conservatives are going to lose overwhelmingly all the time. Um, so. The, the old idea of the 20th century of the Liberals being the natural governing party of Canada, um, you know, I think that was definitely true until some point in the late 70s. But since then, Conservatives are in power, maybe not half the time, but close to half the time. It's probably healthy for the country, whether you're a Conservative or a Liberal or a Democrat or a Green or whatever. Having one party in power forever is a terrible plan. Um, and so I think there's always a path for a Conservative. And more than that, the opinion research that I've seen and that I've been involved in, like back in 2006 when Harper won for the first time, um, you know, the percentage of Canadians who were open to voting conservative was consistently in the low 40s. We were able to win that election, get the most seats with 36% of the vote. We need, you know, we needed to get a very large chunk of our vote. Now, I don't know what your opinions have been showing more recently, David, but, you know, now when you look at it, somewhere... 45, depending on the poll, somewhere 47, 48, 49% of Canadians are open to voting conservative. We have a larger voter universe today than we did 15 years ago, and that means our chances of winning are, you know, more likely in a given election. Obviously, there's individual circumstances uh, that will take place, and doesn't mean we're going to win uh, every election or even most elections, but we're in a position that we can keep competitive in most elections. I'm increasingly of the view that it's hard for any single political party to find a natural majority anymore, that it almost feels like we're so, we're much more fragmented that minority governments, given our system, are actually maybe more likely to happen than not because of certainly Quebec and, um, you know, the reemergence of the bloc, but you're, you know, you've got the Greens and the New Democrats don't, you know, they're not going anywhere. It, it feels like, you know, any party uh, might have a hard time finding enough 
voters to, to cobble together that majority. But, you know, your point about the Conservatives having that opportunity, no, it's still there. Um, you know, our, we see the, the band of accessible voters fluctuate between like 43 and 47, 48 uh, at any given time. I think it's a little lower. Right. And, and my, my point is that 15 years ago, 47 would have been inconceivable, right? right? The band would have fluctuated between 41 and 44 kind of thing. Right. right. So yeah, 43, it could be as low as 43 sometimes. Absolutely. But the average of that band is now maybe, you know, 45, 46, whereas it used to be 42. That's, that, that makes a big difference. I'm curious how, last question on the Conservatives, because I'm curious how we talked about region earlier being such a fundamental, you know, variable, in, I think Canadian history, let alone just more recently, which it seems to have reemerged as uh, that, that regional identity as being so important to to voting. You know, how could, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing anywhere between like 15 and 20% of Albertans within a few years, with a few months voted NDP provincially and then Conservative solidly uh, federally, how does a conservative party that's so strongly rooted in those prairie provinces and its 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 MPs are so you know a key part of the caucus and probably I'm sure a lot of money is raised in that part of the country, a lot of volunteers. How is it is it is that a, a fundamental challenge for the conservative party to to reconcile its its sort of prairie base with growing in and, and reconnecting with voters now in the Lower Mainland and in of BC and in and in the GTA around Toronto. Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, first of all, we had a great success in the Lower Mainland in the last in the last election. We picked up a bunch of suburban seats, a bunch of highly ethnically diverse seats um, that uh, that people, you know, Ontario-based commentators seem to think that Conservatives can't win, in, and you know, our experience in the Lower Mainland was the exact opposite. Obviously, it would have been better to even win even more, but I'm, you know, I'm pleased with the additions we made to our caucus uh, in that region. Um, I, I'm of the view that you can be a, uh, you can advocate for things that are good for the West, and you can still advocate for things that are good for the rest of the country as well. You know, it, it, the Conservative Party is not the bloc of the West. Um, you know, that is only a party of the West advocating solely for the West. You know, obviously, there's been a big focus on the, you know, the oil and gas industry, the energy sector indirectly and even directly employs, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in Ontario and Quebec. Um, uh, and you can be an advocate for, uh, you know, a strong Canadian industry uh, that will appeal in other parts of, 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 of the country. So I don't think it's it's exclusionary at this point. I think it becomes, you know, it's obviously... Uh, exclusionary for someone like the Bloc, who's obviously only interested in Quebec, but their message is just about the region. The Conservatives, you know, aren't today of today aren't the Reform Party of you know the 1980 or sorry 1988 or 1993 elections, you know, with a slogan like the West wants in, where it's about the West. It, you know, it's a it's a party that obviously takes uh, Western priorities extremely seriously and advocates for them. Um, but is uh, uh, in a position, you know, can 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 obviously can do well in Ontario. We still got a third of the vote in Ontario. It would have been nice to have gotten more. And I'd point out that, you know, for a party as firmly rooted in the West, there were no leadership candidates um, from the West in the most uh, recent uh, election that took place this year. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting to see how the, whenever this next election comes, plays out, because I think these are all interesting dynamics. And And you're right, we now no longer have a, Although Jagmeet Singh represents a Western 
riding. He's not really a Western Canadian. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, I want to end with, with just a sort of stepping back and as a professional researcher um, who's, who's sort of done this for, for a while and has, like me, had to respond to change in technology and how people respond. I guess the big question is, what is the future of public opinion research. I guess, you know, the, the presidential election in the U.S. raised more doubts and questions around, can we survey people? Can we accurately reach, uh, not accurately, but can we actually reach everybody? What's your thoughts? Like, is, is, are you hopeful about the future of what you do or are you feeling? Well, you know, uh, my, my view is that research or public opinion research is often maligned for something it shouldn't be used for. Right, which is predicting the future. Um, you know, I never poll and I never tell my clients to poll uh, in order to understand what something is going to happen or to understand, uh, to see where we are in the horse race. That's not valuable information. You should only poll to make, to understand where opinion is in a, in a, in a, in a mosaic of issues around whatever it is you care about and to make decisions. So, you know, you will know to talk about issue X over issue Y because one is more salient and one isn't. You know, I, I think it goes back to something I said earlier that the failure of probabilistic thinking is is a large a large part of the, the some of the problems that happen in the American election. You know, looking at the polls, um, you know, everybody I talked to, let me put it this way, everybody I talked to in the lead up to uh, November's uh, American election, uh, told me that one of two things were going to happen. Either, and some people told me both of these things, uh, either that Joe Biden was going to win in a, in a landslide, or that Donald Trump would somehow sneak across the finish line and eke out a victory. Um, and everybody told me, uh, people told me one of those things, or some people told me both of those things. If you believe both of those things were possible, and I certainly believe they were both possible, and looking at the public opinion, they're both possible. Any understanding of probability would say that the, then, in that case, the most likely outcome is that Biden would win narrowly, um, which is exactly what happened. Um, you know, he narrowly won the states he needed to win. And uh, therefore, the most likely outcome, as predicted by polling and everything else, is what happened. But people seem to believe that people didn't take a probabilistic approach to it. So look, I think opinion uh, research has got a, a, a long and uh, valuable future, but I think it's hurt by people saying, you know, what's going to happen next Tuesday, and then excoriating, excoriating um, uh, pollsters because you know something happened that was three percent more than you know than it said otherwise. There's margins of error in everything. Everything's got margins of error. We all accept that, um, but people don't really internalize it. Um, so, you know, use polling to make decisions. And guess what? If the polling says you're one point ahead, be, be okay with the fact that you might be two points behind and might still lose, because that's probably well within the margin of error. And, you know, if, if poll says you're one point ahead or three points behind, what you should take from that isn't that you're one point ahead, you're going to win for sure, you're three points behind, you're going to lose for sure. Take that as it's going to be close and act accordingly. Um, so, you know, I suspect it's a, it's a common um, 
lament of experts that they that their tools and the things that they use that they create are misused um, in the press and by uh, by laymen. But I'll, I'll have to plead guilty to uh, to uh, a common lament. Well, on that note, and on a bullish note for our sector and our industry and our profession, um, Hamish, thanks so much for your time, and uh, it's been a I learned a lot, and I and I think those listening, and my students, and, and others will uh, will take a lot from this. So thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk soon. My pleasure. Thanks, David.